Maybe it's because you're licking those banisters. That's how you've acquired yeah, I built the... up immunity. Yeah, no, it was right. Serbian. Just... It's Serbian immunity. It was the fantastic food that you were fucking complaining about. It was the rakia that you drank. Mm. Did he Peterson did I'm not sure thing. that Serbian immunity works in The Hague, but... Uh... <laughs> oh! <laughs> oh, I see now. Well, hey, it worked it for Jordan Peterson and it worked it for works. you because you didn't it get works for... It works for me too. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I'm afraid and it will go. It'll like leave me. Yeah. It works for Djokovic as well. Maybe. That's true. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. We'll see. see. Okay. Um, you don't like Djokovic, I guess, Alex, because you're also like like Federer, like a Swiss Euro trash, right? I mean, just not Southwestern Euro trash. <laughs> just, I don't know. <laughs> Central Euro, Middle Europe, and your Middle European trash, I guess. Ugh, the worst kind of Euro trash. <laughs> Actually, not exactly the worst kind of Euro trash. The worst kind of Euro trash are the Euro trash we're going to be talking about with you, Lily. Oh, well, the, oh the yeah. Dutch oh, that's right. Yeah. I think I think the German greens. <laughs> yeah. German green pedophiles. I think probably are the worst kind of Euro trash. To be fair, should we get started? We'll, we're gonna. So wait. So we'll we'll go through um, and we'll start with the pedophiles, and then we'll go on to war. Um, which sounds like one of our usual outlines. That's how we normally start. Pedophiles first, then war, and then the future. Does that sound good? Okay. Great. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to BungaCast, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. I'm Alex Hokuli. It's Thursday, the 13th of January. And I'm joined as usual by uh, a man who misses all of the shots he doesn't take and quite a couple of the ones he does, George Hoare. Hi, George. Wow, what an introduction. Thanks. Yep. Uh, joined by one of a handful, a small handful of men who describe themselves as the last Marxist and uh, maybe stay tuned to see if they fight to the death to find out who truly is the last one. It's Philip Cunliffe. The last true Marxist, but thank you for the introduction. <laughs> uh, and we're delighted to welcome back uh, for, what is it, the second, third time? Uh, and it should be more often, really. Lily Lynch. Hello. Hi. Thank you guys very much. How's, uh, how's Belgrade? It's good. It's good. Never a dull moment. Uh, pretty well. How are you Excellent. guys? Good. Hey, tell us, Lily, uh, while we got you on the line, is there anything happening in Belgrade over Djokovic? Like, I mean, beyond the general kind of press hullabaloo, is there anything a bit more like, is it being talked about on the street, in the cafes, that kind of thing? I think it's the only thing people were talking about. I mean, you didn't hear a single thing about the weather, about the snow, and and it's quite snowy outside, and people were just completely consumed by Djokovic, even non-sports fans, because people really saw uh, saw their own experiences with borders uh, as Serbs traveling the world, and and especially in the West, in that story. And there's quite a lot in Australia, isn't there? I mean, I know there's quite a lot of Croatians, but uh, I imagine Serbs as well, yeah? yeah? Yeah, there are, yeah. Same difference anyway. Well, that's interesting. <laughs> that's interesting to hear. And do you think like, so it presumably also it'll be a boost to Vax skepticism in Serbia as well, his his kind of um, new age stance on the on the issue? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think there's there's a lot of like vaccine skepticism here 
already, you know, there ha- there is, you kind of can expect, there's a lot of kind of like esoteric beliefs and uh, interest in like healing, um, natural healing and no GMOs, um, that kind of thing. But I mean, I would say that even people who are vaccinated like kind of adopted like a contrarian like and you know support for his decision I guess just because there's a sort of enot you know kind of defiance in it that it's very Serbian yeah yeah it certainly is yeah so that pretty much confirms everything that I imagined was going on so <laughs> so I, I mean it's actually quite opposite we're going to be talking about weird hippie remedies well maybe remedies isn't the right word but uh let me let me let me it's just definitely, uh, it's definitely not the right word <laughs> Um, But actually, before we go any further, I should say, and I'm going to say this at the end as well, but uh, people should sign up to Lily's Patreon. It's patreon.com slash Lily S. Lynch. And we're going to be talking about a couple of things she's written on there, uh, specifically about a group that's, I guess, marked by its lust for war, by its lust for children, and its lust for the planet. And that is the German Greens. (laughs) Um, And and it's a a good moment to talk about them. It's a good moment uh, for Lily to have written about them because they're back in power. They're the junior partner in the traffic light coalition in Germany. Uh, They have five ministries, uh, including the vice chancellor and the foreign minister. Um, And of course, if you're not aware, they're in a coalition with the Social Democrats and the neoliberal Free Democrats, Um, though arguably they're all just different shades of neoliberalism. Maybe we can come back to that. one of the interesting things in tracking the history of the Greens is, is to see their transformation into a mainstream pro-capitalist party uh, that embraced war in the late 90s and the market, but you know, with a lot of kind of feel-good vibes uh, <laughs> attached. Um, I've said this on the podcast before, and I'm going to say it, I'm going to repeat it. It's a great tweet by Julia Damphouse, who, if she's listening, hi, Julia, um, which is the only truly universal law of political science is that leftists always think that the Green Party in their country is particularly bad and neoliberal but that the Green Party of some other country is decent. In parentheses, it isn't, and the leftists there think the same thing. I think that's really good. I think it's very appropriate because um, if you have any illusions, harbor any illusions as to the quality of Green parties elsewhere, uh, you're wrong. They're just as bad as the Greens where you are. Well, I guess we should just jump into the first theme, which is uh, pedophiles and the pedophiles association with Greens, um, which sounds crazy, but uh, this is all... I guess, part of the long tail of 1968 and the whole radicalism associated with that moment. Um, the Greens, it's worth saying, they were founded formally in 1980 um, and you know, formed around four pillars of social justice, ecological wisdom, grassroots democracy, and nonviolence. And then they were in government, of course, from 1998 to 2005. But before this, before this period, um, before their entry into power and becoming increasingly mainstream, there was a kind of, there were some groups associated with the Greens who described themselves as pedosexuals, I'm going to let Lily explain um, what is what is this history. Um, well, it kind of grows out of 1968 and the whole kind of ideology of um, anti-authoritarianism, and um, this psychoanalyst William Reich's um, work. Um, he was kind of the main kind of this guy who was cited, uh, a disciple of Freud, an Austrian kind of communist. He wrote The Mass Psychology of Fascism, and he believed that um, families are authoritarian, the kind of nuclear family, um, and that he also believed that the suppression of child's, uh, child sexuality is authoritarian. And so this is kind of where a lot of this um, kind of early flirtation uh, with pedophilia kind of begins with the, with the Greens, a lot of these guys who began as uh, student activists. Um, 
And so there was both a kind of an activism component and then um, that grew into um, a kind of a communal kindergarten movement in the seventies. Um, and that's where one of the main kind of figureheads of the Greens remains so today, Daniel Cohn-Bennett, he's French German. He was Danny the Red in 1968, a kind of real student leader. Um, he worked in one of these anti-authoritarian kindergartens um, and he wrote very kind of graphic descriptions of like sexual contact with the five-year-old girl um, that are, it's kind of very shocking and disturbing to read now. Just, you know, we can't really even imagine that ever being considered something like liberatory or, um, and so, but uh, just to back up a little bit, sorry. Um, uh, part of the reason I think this, like idea around pedophilia and like, sexual liberation really took off is because you know, this is the generation after the Nazis who are trying to kind of, um, who are looking you know, for explanations for why their parents didn't rebel basically. And so this really kind of took on some, uh, had some attractions um, to put it in a kind of terrible way. Um, this idea that like sexuality could um, kind of liberate the nation from these uh, restrictive kind of confines that had led them to to fascism, to Nazism. So um, that's kind of the beginning of it. Very, but very intriguingly, um, also there were ex-Nazis in the party too. And I found this absolute, I mean, the whole thing was just a kind of a fascinating greed, not only for the kind of the... I mean, everything about it is kind of so weird and shocking and, you know, like a time capsule from another era, which it is, I suppose, but also the combinations like green Nazi pedophiles. Like, I mean, it's like three of the things that I think everyone is entitled to legitimately hate. And they're all together. They're all together, like in one package. I mean, astonishing. Exactly, exactly. That's that's absolutely right. I mean, there there was um, I, I wrote an, a separate like standalone article just on this Nazi pedophile, um, very prolific pedophile, who was one of the kind of founding members of the Greens, who was their oldest member. He was in their commercials, a very kind of famous Green Party commercial ahead of their 19, 1980 elections. Um, and it turned out that he was, um, you know, indulging in, you know, sex with very, very young children, again, around five, six, seven, um, in these um, these communes that were also affiliated with the Green Party, where you had local Green Party leaders who were kind of the directors of the communes, and then the, the children living in those communes, those are kind of street kids um, living in these communes, uh, they would then come to Green Party events um, and speak and like, you know, carry posters that said, you know, children's rights. And it was kind of presented, uh, pedophile rights were presented as children's rights, the, the child's right to choose um, who they have sex with, they live with. And it, uh, yeah. I mean, well, one of the things that struck me is that I'm trying to, I, I like Wilhelm Reich. I mean, I think The Mass Psychology of Fascism mm -hmm. is still a brilliant book. Um, and so I'm trying to, uh, spare him the tar of the pedophile brush. Um, but I, th I think the, the reality is that there is a certain logic there in terms of um, the role that sexual repression plays, the repression of like ch childhood sexuality um, and the kind of punitive kind of uh, superego that that creates and that that manifests itself socially and so on. So there's a logic there and its association with authoritarianism. I guess what's striking here is that 
it seems like just a lot of sexual liberation and not a lot of other liberation. Like it's kind of the, you know, I mean, I, I say, I, I, like, I mean that in the sense that there's doesn't seem to be really like creating a new type of society. It's just pursuing these kind of liberated sexual mores within the same capitalist society, I guess. Um, that, or maybe I'm reading history backwards. Maybe there was a deeper radicalism there, but like, that's what struck me reading your, your pieces. And I think that's also it's a good criticism of the green, what the Green Party evolved into. I mean, I guess we'll get to that later. I guess the only real attempt at like um, kind of putting Reich's like, like attitudes about sh- um, childhood sexuality into like some kind of practice were, were these anti-authoritarian kindergartens where it was believed like the next generation of Germans could be instructed or not instructed. They actually were against any kind of um, their anti-pedagogue. Uh, pedagogical sorry thank you for the pro, pro-pedophilia but anti-pedagogy <laughs> yeah, anti-pedagogy. yeah exactly uh and um and so the idea was that in these anti-authoritarian kindergartens they would kind of uh, be deprogrammed they would be de-germanified or however you put that there is so they would be not instructed i don't know how you put it but they would um they would be yeah they would they would have a different kind of hands-on education it's really Facili- facilitated <laughs> perhaps or uh, yes or um, encouraged or something like that. But those kind of neoliberal buzzwords of empowerment. Yeah. Empowered. There you go. Empowered. I mean, that's that's quite that's still quite a, a prevalent educational philosophy today. You know, uh, well, <laughs> some parts of it, the idea that you kind of let let children discover things. It's actually, you know, it's kind of oppressive to actually tell them things or to transfer knowledge. Instead, just let them let them just find out themselves. It's in their in their brains and they can discover it through play. I mean, I should say that's that's the contemporary um, philosophy of education. I think some of the other elements yeah. which which were mixed in here are probably not quite so um, so prevalent. But I did actually have a, a, a question on, I guess, you know, the, the initial appeal of some of these um, ideas. I mean, was it as straightforward as essentially saying that the so this 68 generation, <clears throat> they sort of they explained their their parents adherence to, to Nazism because they were just too repressed. They were too rule following. So any essentially any kind of libertarian impulse, any liberation is the more the better, because like it can't be as bad as being a Nazi. I think that must have been it. Like just a really like terrible overcorrection. I mean, I think that that's one good interpretation. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it is, it, what is fascinating to... is precisely this kind of reckoning with authoritarianism, like intellectual reckoning with it uh, at the same time as they like allow these ex-Nazis in. You know, I mean, that's what's like that's what's so completely perverse about it. I just so just to pick up on two threads. So uh, could you tell us a bit more about um, about Daniel Cohn-Bendit, uh, Danny the Red's kind of um, how he because this story kind of resurfaced so he um this was published it resurfaced and he defended himself from the claims that he was um sexually abusing or molesting the children in his care at the time so i was wondering if you could just tell us a bit um just in terms of the historical record of like what you know the context in which the claims resurfaced and how he defended himself but then also if you could tell us a bit about the nazi who or the former nazi who fronted the greens um, propaganda in the 1980s, if you could tell us a bit about what his role um, during the Nazi era was, um, oh. what he'd done in the party, that kind of thing. 
Sure. Um, well, to go back to Daniel Cohn Bennett, um, his um, so he he wrote that passage that I described to you, not in any detail, but about the five year old girl in the kindergarten that he worked in a kindergarten for two years, and then there was actually a second time where he described again um, sexual contact with a, a kindergarten age little girl uh, on a talk show um, on a German talk show in 1982, I believe, um, and this. There's a whole, you know, paragraph length uh, transcript of that. Um, and again, like, no, I don't think anybody really batted an eyelash at the time, but then it came up again about a decade later. If I'm, no, 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 sorry. Uh, I need to look at that. I need to find that year. I'm sorry. I need, uh, that was, huh, 2001. Yeah, 2001, apologies. Um, the passages resurfaced then because uh, Bettina Roll, who's the daughter, who's the, she was the daughter of, um, um, Ulrika Meinhof from the Red Army faction. She leaked them to the media along with photos of, um, of Yashka Fischer um, beating a police officer, engaged in violence against a police officer. And there's a lot of debate as to why this, why she did that. Um, one interpretation that I read was that she kind of felt that um, these kind of former radicals who'd like gone on to like have great careers in, in the German government, like kind of sold her mom out, you know, and, and that, that their true radicals like died in prison. And, um, and then there was also the interpretation that she um, was angry about their support for the war in Serbia um, or some combination of, of those two things. So either way, she leaked those things to the media and he, um, Daniel um, Con Bennett, um, said exactly kind of like what you said. He said that these were not uh, representations of what, anything that actually happened. Uh, that, I, I mean, I, I don't understand his uh, explanation because I don't think there's anything funny about, I think he said something like, oh, it was like entertainment or that um, he was trying to imagine Reich's teachings, but these didn't reflect like an actual situation, um, like contact that he had with a little girl. Sorry, um, it was, so it was a bit like uh, OJ saying, like, I, I, here's how I would have done it. I didn't do it, but here's how, <laughs> right. like, here's what I would have done. Um, exactly. Yeah, okay. I think the, the part that um, was a little bit hard for people to understand is the fact that he, like, um, years later in the early 80s, like, also kind of talked about this. this the, the contact with the little girl was supposed to have happened in the late 70s, or he wrote about it in the late 70s. And then 1982, he was on this talk show. Um, where he again talked about the sexual contact, very graphic with a um, five-year-old girl. And um, so that was, so he, he basically successfully defended himself publicly. Um, I think that part of the reason why his kind of spin on it was so successful is that this Germany does tend to have much more kind of lib, um, I don't want to say permissive, but say more um, their, their treatment of pedophiles, if you like look into Germany's um, kind of philosophy about that, it tends to be much, um, much kind of more compassionate and uh, liberal, um, say, than, than what we, uh, at least than, than what exists in the US. Uh, also, I think that there were just so many people who in, had these views um, during the late 60s and 70s, and these anti-authoritarian kindergartens were just kind of such a feature of Berlin, like as whole neighborhoods like Kreuzberg and Berlin were um, just had, you know, storefronts that were turned into kindergartens. 
And so for whatever reason, his, uh, his apology or not, he did apologize and he said that, you know, he, I'm not into kids or I was never into kids. That wasn't my thing. I was there for other reasons. It kind of insinuated that he had a good time, but not with kids. Um, so um, he uh, continued and had obviously a very successful career and he's still in the public eye. Um, he still comments, you know, all over the place on politics in France. He's always kind of, he's kind of taken it upon himself to um, either condemn or support um, as the voice of 1968 uh, protest movements. You know, he'll say like the yellow vests are that are, are authoritarian, so they're bad and they don't have the spirit of 68 or whatever, you know, he'll, <laughs> that kind of thing. So, yeah. Yeah, it's a good it's a good kind of career move becoming the voice of a voice of a generation, the, the spirit of 68, keeper of the flame. Right. Danny the Green now. And he's, he's always, he's, I think he advises Ugh. conversation with Macron, like he has some kind of advisory capacity. I need to fact check that, but he certainly sp- speaks positively of him. I was just reading um, him, con- you know, kind of condemning the um, yellow, yellow vests for having like authoritarian tendencies and um, speaking very glowingly of Macron. So authoritarian uh, yeah. because they're not fidd- fiddling with kids, I guess. Um <laughs> But so, or, or indeed, or indeed, sending in the riot cops against the yellow vests, you know. Like, right, yeah. right. That's democratic. Yeah. Sorry, <laughs> that's democracy. That's that's so that's fascinating. So, so your read of it then is that too much of a can of worms for people to look any deep to kind of challenge him any further on on that episode, given the prevalence of these anti-authoritarian kind of practices throughout German society in in that era. Um, yeah, I also have another interpretation, which is that, well, okay, <laughs> the, I think that the media in Germany, uh, in the European liberal press in general, is very sympathetic to the Greens. It's incredibly, incredibly sympathetic um, to the point of it being a little bit, um, it's actually probably one of the things that really prompted me to want to write about them is when I see like one politician or political party receiving this sort of, you know, almost like absurd, like effusive praise by supposedly neutral um, media personalities or media outlets, you know, it makes me want to like dig and like, what is going on behind, what's going on behind all this. Um, And so uh, I think that he, they, they are, are absolutely the beneficiaries Colin Bennett, but also other Greens who who wrote, you know, PhDs in defense of pedophilia. There's a whole, a bunch of other, like, slightly less prominent figures, but certainly also equally as positive towards pedophilia. Um, I just think that that this, they they made themselves very, very important for the powerful people. And, um, like, they lent a lot of kind of moral credibility. And we'll talk about that more later as we get into, like, the late 90s with with, um, the Kosovo War. Yeah. but uh, certainly they had a, a lot of a very sympathetic press. And in my opinion, the, the, when I started digging into the pedophilia part of the story, you know, I was shocked because what you kind of first come across, the first kind of you know, results you get in, say, Google, if you're just going to Google it, certainly you, come up, you see some pretty, some pretty like, upsetting stuff, but you do not even scratch the surface of the extent 
uh, to which this was really like a, a something that um, was a part of you know mainstream green discussions and and efforts to repeat. That's another thing that I need to mention. Um, there's a paragraph in the German uh, penal code that outlawed pedophilia, and that a big part of the German um, the German Greens kind of activism in the in the 80s was about repealing that. Um, at least that was a mainstream position that a lot of Greens held, and it was not fully removed from the Green's agenda um, until the mid nineties, from what I understand. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, Can actually I wanted to tell us a bit that first, because wait, first of all, I wanted to hear about the green Nazi as well. Oh yeah. So. Yeah. Sorry that I'm jumping all over the place. Um, uh, so the, yes, this, this uh, gentleman who was, uh, who was like their oldest member and like quite an elderly man uh, when they were founded in, in, in the, in his seventies at the time. Um, so he kind of stood out with all these other kind of, you know, young adults or say people in their thirties and forties. Um, and it, it came out during, he actually was elected to the, uh, I think that he was, he never actually was formally sworn in at the Bundestag. I think that's, if that's correct. Um, because did, did, did he describe himself as the last true Marxist just, just by, by any, <laughs> I, no? I don't think so. Cause he I seems like the that. type of guy who would, I don't know. Anyway, go on. I'm sorry. I interrupted you. I interrupted Shut you. up, Alex. Interrupting he seemed like, like a very unassuming young uh, old man. Sorry, like everyone kind of saw him as this like grandfatherly figure. And he was he really had a kind of prominent intellectual place in the party. He was considered like the um, the gray cardinal kind of kind of figure. Um, and uh, so I think right, right at the like at his height, when he was supposed to take finally be sworn in and take office. It's like the old he was a senior me- oldest member of the Bundestag would have been uh, had he been allowed to take office. When the media dug up some information about his past, which was that he had actually he was a Nazi stormtrooper, um, and he later uh, served in the ministry of uh, the Interior Ministry, the Nazi Interior Ministry in Berlin, and he fought on the Eastern Front. It was in a Soviet um, um, prisoner of war. And then um, in 1954, I think was released and went back to Germany. But I mean, he was like a very willing Nazi, very, um, very committed yeah. ideologically. I mean, serving in the Ministry of the Interior uh, is no small thing. Isn't it? Um, so, um, and the, the real incredible part is this is a, pro-peace party right you know this is a very very that's like their whole thing is like green stuff pedophilia and and like at this point in time before they kind of switch and become pro-war this they were and you know anti-nukes uh for you know end of the cold war and and, and really like mark a generational shift right like because you're saying that lots of young people really mark a generational shift draw a line under you know everything pre-1945 and that we were trying to deal with our past and kind of yeah pacifism like as a foreign policy for Germany without any kind of um, you know qualification or um, so yeah yeah so he it came out that he was this very committed Nazi a Nazi official um, and like it, it, it also turned out that he had told like um, on his in his um, uh, Bundeslande like at the level of the the um, they had, he had told like his party, like they hadn't made it public, but like uh, many prominent Greens knew about it and they just let him go ahead and run for office and, and be a face of the party and be in commercials. I don't know how they thought that was <laughs> going to be hidden forever. Um, yeah. 
It's one of the weird, I mean, one of the weird kind of overlooked things, or at least maybe it's not talked about as much as I think it should be, is um, just also how far, I mean, the connection isn't accidental, how far the Nazis themselves kind of pioneered the green policies from, um, you know, kind of animal friendly policies, cracking down on animal experimentation in favor of human experimentation eventually, but also their plans to kind of transform vast swathes of Eastern Europe into kind of effective nature reserves because all the people would have been killed or expelled um, and that kind of, you know, model. Um, so as well as anti-pollution, pioneering anti-pollution and anti-smoking laws. So there is the, I mean, that connection between the Greens and the Nazis um, is a, you know, it's ideologically in terms of the development of um, political ideas is a very genuine one and non-accidental, I think, ultimately, given the, um, you know, the core of Nazism um, and the way in which it views humanity's relationship to nature and seeing humans ultimately as nothing more than, um, you know, nothing more than kind of biological beings, um, kind of uh, also, uh, you know, uh, like a racial hierarchy that's essentially just Darwinian and that there's nothing more to people than, than, um, than their role in nature. It's unsurprising. Well, you know, and that's maybe the, the, the pedophile stuff proves, you know, humans are just destroyers and rapists and we're here to prove that they are. <laughs> there's another, I know, I, I think there's another explanation there. I was thinking about this actually, like what is the connection between, I'm not saying all, like environmentalists are, are pedophiles, obviously, but like, what is the, is there a theoretical connection to the extent that you have, like, you have a, sh a kind of, in some ways, a shared starting point of the, <clears throat> the celebration of the innocence of, of youth, of, of the natural and a kind of suspicion to, I'm, I might be completely overthinking this and, and I, I, um, I think there's something there. upsetting any go, go on. environmentalists. No, no, I, I, Okay, oh, I'm going to keep going. No, 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 because there's gonna... there's the sort of noble savage idea, right? Which I think yeah. environmentalists yeah. maybe hold to. And that that's somehow here in terms of like the innocence of the child who is allowed to self-determine. And that, you know, a kind of Rousseauian idea where outside of the constraints and uh, discipline of schools and, you know, formal parenting and all the rest yeah, of it, if children are allowed to just think... express themselves and no, and truly self-develop, that they will be more free and so on than, than, uh, than, than civilizational man. But they don't think kids are innocent. The premise of all of this kind of, I mean, all this overblown kind of um, theory of child, you know, childhood self-determination that Lily talks about in her pieces, the premise is, that they they not only have sexuality, which is like you know a basic premise of um, psychoanalysis and Freudianism, but also that they're capable of self determination and choosing for themselves. Ah, uh, but mm. it has to be supplemented with a kind of a celebrate like the yeah children have the right to choose, but also the environmentalist slash pedophile sorry i don't mean that these two groups are the same has to have some reason to celebrate the the child it, 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 i think there is that maybe that romantic shared maybe. starting point but i feel like i'm probably just alienating a lot of uh, a lot of listeners uh, without there's one, there's one I, I, group that we're not in risk of alienating and this was i thought a really kind of weird cranny that you exposed in the course of the um in the course of the writing which was um, in the course of the pieces you wrote, Lily, which was this about lesbian paedophiles, oh, um, which is so know. kind of odd and strange. And again, um, contrary to, uh, you know, the general, I suppose, assumption of um, uh, paedophiles being men. Um, could you tell us a bit about this very odd corner of this of the 
uh, German paedophile movement in the 60s? Yes, this is one of the stranger uh, kind of uh, parts of the story for sure. Um, I think I mentioned before that there were these communes that were um, to varying degrees linked to the Green Party, either directed by Green Party officials or uh, had a, or there was a lot of crossover with activists or people who lived there. And there was one uh, all-female um, pedophile commune um, they called themselves the sewer rats in Berlin uh, in the early 80s. And, you know, they had a manifesto. They had a publication. They participated in Green Party events, uh, LGBT events, and attempted to, you know, kind of help the, uh, say, the gay, then it was gay and lesbian um, uh, section of the predecessor to the German Green Party in West Berlin called the Alternative List. Uh, to kind of um, yeah, lobby for the legalization of pedophilia. Um, it just is very, very strange because it's uh, the only kind of example in anywhere, because I was looking for other, other examples of say, political pedophiles or women, you know, that like actually had some kind of um, say organizing or organized like group, you know, and then I couldn't, there was nothing else. Um, and I, I, um, and so it gets very, uh, it was, it's a little bit difficult uh, to fully ascertain because there's so few, you know, there's not that much out there. Um, but up to the extent to which they were involved in pedophilia and how much of it was, um, sort of provocative uh, advertising to the outside world. I'm not saying that, you know, there are, there are clearly were female, uh, pe female pedophiles involved um, and there clearly are female pedophiles in the world, but just there is some discussion and some one of these like very obscure dry German reports about, you know, pedophilia in Berlin and the 80, uh, between the seventies and um, to present that just came out, I think last year. Um, where they, they kind of talk about how, you know, we don't know the extent to which uh, there was a actual, you know, pedophilia, but you know, there were, there were some, and you can see from, from in my piece I, about female pedophile, uh, pedophile commune, the female pedophile in the sewer rats, you know, they, they speak very openly about like a girl's sexuality and um, they interrupt this big event as a kind of a, um, not a stone wall, but like a real historic, pivotal kind of um, gathering of gays and lesbians in West Germany um, that kind of like, um, it, it's the very, very beginning of the era of AIDS, you know, and um, uh, it was, a, it's uh, these, these lesbian pedophiles kind of interrupted it and broke up this event where it was, um, and uh, it, they were shouting about, you know, um, Look, little girls have a sexuality. Why are why are gay men dominating the debate about you know gay and lesbian rights and gay men sexuality is just like you know as oppressive as heterosexuality and that kind of thing. And then um, it it was very divisive for the gay and lesbian movement at the time, apparently. Um, so in, yeah, and sorry, just I think one of the things that you you quoted in the. Um, uh, in the article, which I think was pretty striking, is um, gay sexuality is also like adult um, uh, heterosexuality, atomic bomb sexuality, which mm. is what at this 1980 rally um, at the, in Bonn, which was then the capital of West Germany. Um, so what, yeah, what what did they mean by that? I mean, is it because it's interesting that kind of like anti um, anti like atom bomb kind of uh, line comes anti, in anti anti nuclear. 
Um, yeah. And pro-pedophile and anti-nuclear. <laughs> I wish we could say that all anti-nuclear people were, pro, were pro-pedophile, pro-pedophilia, but probably not. I just want to make clear that this podcast is very much pro-nuclear and anti-pedophile. So, you know, <laughs> exactly. we're on the right side of history, I think. Exactly. It's, not, it's not a difficult barrier, but, you know, still. Uh, you know, I, it's so weird to read some of this stuff because it's, you know, we, I don't know, it, it, you can't even really imagine the way that people talk to it, or it's hard for me to imagine like the atomic bomb being like this, meaning what it must have meant in, in Germany when the middle, you know, during the cold war, um, you know, um, so in West Germany with like East Germany, not so far away. And, and, um, so, uh, I think when they said like uh, that, um, that, you know, homosexuality or like, you know, adult gay uh, homosexuality is, um, is atomic bomb sexuality. I think what they meant is like, it's also very destructive. It's, you know, the same kind of anti-authoritarian language. Like they, they were, I only included that one passage of that, but it's a very long rambling um, kind of, uh, I don't know, interruption that they, uh, this dis- um they interrupted this event in Bonn and um, these, these women from this, this uh, a female, all female commune. And well, um, yeah. What's, what's interesting, I thought, was how, you're, um, how you pick up on the fact that what they did was generally to try and hijack discussions about equalizing age of consent laws. Yeah. So efforts to equalize age of consent um, between um, between for homosexuals as they were then for heterosexuals um, because they were generally older for men than they were for straight couples, and so they tended they uh, they aimed according to the, what what you've um, put down is they basically aimed to kind of intervene in those debates in order to make the case for abolishing consent laws entirely. That's right. I think that was um, one reason why you know, the, the gay community in West Germany, was it relatively easy for pedophiles to, uh, to infiltrate because the 1969 reform of this, of the law on um, um, governing um, sexual contact between men uh, was, it, it made the law, I think it was age of consent was 21 for gay men and then 18 for, for um, heterosexuals. So that made it kind of easy for pedophiles to say, look, our cause is the same as yours here. You know, this is how we're going to frame things. And also because I think if I remember correctly, that the Nazis criminalized all uh, homosexual contact. And that was also a way that, that um, um, pedophiles kind of infiltrated the gay, gay um, rights movement. Yeah, I mean, I can sort of see how they would see that as a the opposite, the joint opposition to um, those age of consent laws, the kind of gay rights angle, the the then the kind of smuggled in pedophilia, and the opposition to nuclear power, to nuclear weapons, as a kind of total opposition to you know technical rationalizing a repressive society, which is what they saw. Um, but it, it's kind of it's kind of crazy. Like I think that one of the quotes as well, which I wanted to pull out, which you um, put in your article, is that the U.S. and the USSR will keep rearming, and the gays can't. <clears throat> excuse me, and the gays can't get rid of that with their sexuality. There needs to be a whole new kind of sexuality. Um, so just gay liberation wouldn't be enough to explode the whole techno-rational civilization. You need to, you need to have- Clear family has to be well. destroyed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And it's quite, it's quite mad that kind of jump from the kind of most intimate sphere all the way to kind of geopolitics in, in, one, in one go. And there's kind of almost very little political mediation between them. It's a, you know, which is why you can kind of see that kind of, 
you know, kind of cultural radicalism comes to stand in for any other political radicalism. In fact, that that meeting which you described, where they kind of are so obviously disruptive in this kind of pedophile group, it disrupts this pro-gay rights rally or meeting. Um, it does sound like any. I mean, it, on one level, it sounds like a kind of CIA plant. You know, it's like, yeah, get these kind of yeah. the wackiest lefty cultural radicals in and get them to disrupt left-wing meetings just by. The, you know, introducing all these sorts of any other claims about anything else just to dissuade from the from the principal issue at hand. And so, you know, at least it's comforting to know that it's a that it's a longstanding thing. <laughs> that's been I hadn't happening. thought yet. And that's absolutely right. Yeah, I wonder. That's funny. If it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah I mean, you can think of that famous video of the DSA meeting where people are like making these points of privilege and all that kind of thing. You know, it's just completely disruptive sure. and um, distracting and so on. Um, I, t- I definitely thought of that. I just hadn't thought about the CIA component, but like CIA, like funding like pedophiles, but I definitely thought of the uh, GSA. Yeah, I'm, I'm not saying that happened, but it's it's imaginable. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, but don't, don't you think they've, you know, w- in that specific claim been, been proved correct? The US will keep rearming, can't get rid of that with, with their sexuality. You've seen those kind of memes of like the, the planes dropping bombs and then they have the one on the top and then the one on the bottom has like the rainbow flag. It's like, well... Yeah, I mean, who actually thought that so this the could pedophiles, happen? The pedophiles are right, George, basically, you're saying. Um, I'd, I'm just a neutral observer. If, if it's a correct point, I will I will credit that as a correct point, um, which, you know, I think, um, I yeah. <laughs> well, give Seems it time, correct. give it time. You might see like a meme eventually with an Ambler flag on the um, on the B-52, you know, who knows, like, you know. Oh, well, that's a good. Well, that, that's our image for this art, years, for this episode. Another, anyway, another fifty years of uh, culture war could take us anywhere. Who knows? What's What's wrong with the North American Marlon Brando Lookalike Association? That's a <laughs> oh, That's an old bad South that's Park joke. Old, sorry, old sorry. Uh, anyway, so we're breaking breaking taboos. Uh, we're going to come on to the Greens breaking another taboo around war in just a second. Um, but uh, listener, you're already subscribed to our patron because you're listening to this. But uh, I would make like to make a plea for you to rate and review us wherever you get your podcast. That'd be very nice and it will help bring in uh, new listeners. And also, if you've not yet got your copy of The End of the End of History, which came out last year, uh, you might uh, you might want to pick up a copy. You might think you know everything you know about uh, about Bunga Thought, um, but you might be surprised. Uh, and also follow us on sh- social media. Tell your friends uh, in real life or, or on the internet. Um, one little other announcement. Uh, you'll have seen that these uh, local Bungo Cast reading clubs are popping up. Lots of you have already come forward looking to set ones up in the following cities. So in Europe, in Amsterdam, Berlin, Dublin, Leipzig, London, Milan, Stockholm, and Tallinn. And then in North America, in Chicago, L.A., New York, Philadelphia, Portland, Oregon, Seattle, San Francisco, and the Bay Area, Vancouver, Southern New England, uh, encompassing Boston, and Winnipeg, Canada. So uh, if you're in any of those and would like to join up with other BungaCast listeners and join the Reading Club and follow along our syllabus for 2022 around those three themes that we have, uh, get in touch. Get in touch with us at info at BungaCast.com. Or if there's another city which isn't listed and you feel like you want to get together with other listeners and uh, discuss the readings, uh, also let us know and we'll try to put you in touch with other people. Anyway, so as to uh, those taboos, um, I think one of the things that struck me reading the kind of the four pieces that you've written on the German Greens, Lily, is that there's on the one hand this deranged radicalism, which we've just been talking about. And at the same time, or something that maybe comes a little bit later, especially into the 90s, is an almost pathological fixation on maturity. 
and maturity is like for the greens is let's be the grown-ups in the room let's abandon the old wacko radicalism opposition to nuclear power opposition to war and be you know the serious adults in the room who do the serious adult things like bombing other countries um and that's quite a remarkable turnaround so maybe you can describe to us just to start off with how that transformation happens and i guess it's over the course of the 90s really this movement from a pacifist party to a pro-war one yeah, it's a really good question. And I think it mirrors um, kind of a, a process that was happening um, with other sections of the left, you know, people who are maybe, if, if there's anyone older than me here, maybe you would know about it. But um, uh, this, uh, the, the war in Yugoslavia, the breakup of Yugoslavia being kind of a pivotal moment for, for the left uh, with respect to war. And um, this, and I think the Greens are like kind of the most exemplary of, of this transformation. Um, although I would, uh, just in response to what you said about sort of um, the process of growing up, becoming pro-war, I, I do agree with that. But I think there's also an attempt to make war almost an activist kind of um, Mm. Uh, expression of activism and then of radicalism. So it wasn't just about like, okay, we're growing, uh, growing up and we're no longer pacifists. That's definitely part of it. But I think there was also an attempt to kind of, yeah, like I said, to, to kind of um, the, the, the grown up thing was to go to war, but it's also the activist thing to do, the, the, the pro-human rights thing to do. And almost it was like kind of a radical uh, use of power. You know, to, to, they saw um, that use of power. They, they saw it as kind of a, uh, a way of, of fighting nationalism and fighting power. Um, okay, so um, oh, what happens? Uh, the breakup of Yugoslavia, um, Daniel Cohn Bennett was very early on a critic of, um, a very strong critic as you know, most reasonable people were of a lot of atrocities are being committed by Serbs in Bosnia. Um, and I think that he quite early on in 1993, uh, it, he started to advocate for intervention, some kind of intervention. And um, there was some hesitation among other uh, corners of the party, um, a, a lot, a lot of resistance, of course, because the Greens kind of heritage was pacifism. And um, it's also important to remember, you know, that this is, these are, this is the immediate aftermath of Germany's reunification. So, um, and the like after Germany um, reunited, it was basically agreed across the political spectrum that Germany's foreign policy should be policy should be entirely pacifist. Um, that Germany should not commit to any troops outside of NATO anywhere. Um, and so uh, this was um, as as the decade wore on and the you know the uh, Kosovo War started. Um, I think that this, uh, enough, a lot of pressure was put on different uh, people who to take take a stand as uh, and to, to decide like what they were going to support. And so at this point, you kind of see this transformation um, where the left no longer kind of refers to uh, wars that the U.S. won't maybe would like to get involved with by referencing the Vietnam War, but they start referencing World War II. So you kind of, that's the kind of the, the touchstone, like, do we want this to happen again? Instead of we want, uh, we don't want to get involved in another Vietnam, it becomes, we want to prevent another, uh, you know, Holocaust. And so this is also, this has an extra important meaning, obviously, in Germany. Um, and so instead of um, 
the idea that Germany getting involved in a war is Germany becoming more nationalistic. It's like we're going to join NATO, this post-nationalist institution that has, you know, um, multiple, you know, many European uh, countries and North American countries, and we're going to defeat nationalism instead of become more nationalistic. And so it kind of, they, they're able to kind of reimagine um, what war means basically. And I think and if I read the, the, the kind of some of the speeches at the time made by the advocates of uh, bombing in Serbia, uh, you see um, this sort of almost a sense like Germany, you know, will cease to be the Germany of the 40s, and, you know, Germany will be defenders of human rights rather than the, the, the people who, who commit mass atrocities, will stop atrocities rather than being the people who commit them. And it's almost like this, this new role for Germany, being the defender of human rights in Europe and taking the lead and lending real moral force to this idea of humanitarian war. And I think that it just, you can't even, there's, there's no way to sort of um, underestimate like how important that was. Like they really in Europe, like, like lent this um, kind of progressive face to uh, an almost like, you know, left approved stamp of approval to, to, um, uh, to, to war. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's also, it must be, I think also, it's a very kind of paradoxical inversion of German nationalism. Mm -hmm. um, because essentially it's a you know a moment of redemption for the German nation, like you say. No mm -hmm. longer are they the ones who are associated with genocide and atrocities and war in Europe, but rather those sins can be cast off onto um, onto the enemy in this case. Um, it's like Sir, it's like bad dialectics. It's like bad dialectics. You know, you have imperialism, war, and atrocities. You have the negation of that through, you know, pacifism, anti-nuclear, whatever. Actually, and then you have the transcendence of that, the Aufhebung, through uh, humanitarian war and post-national nationalism, which is I what Germany does in the EU point. as well. German interests pursued exactly. through the language of post-nationalism, telling other people, hey, you're not being European, you're being too nationalist. Um, you know. Right. Yeah, but it's a German, but I suppose the point is it's about, it's still about kind of... Um, German national interest and German power taking a particular form. Um, yes. And that seemed, you know, that seems to me uh, that, you know, it's a vital part of the story, but crawling out from underneath the opprobrium of the Holocaust, um, mm -hmm. but doing it also, and I'm, you know, doing it also in a part of Europe in which um, the Germans had been um, uh, so cruel and barbaric in their treatment of um you know, the civilian population and in the conduct of the war in the Second World War itself is, you know, is itself, I mean, tremendously striking. The fact that they were able to kind of affect that transformation, um, you know, it'd be, I mean, and the, you know, the comparison to Vietnam is also apposite to some degree because, you know, in a way, um, I think the, the partisans' defeat of the Germans in the 40s is akin to the Vietnamese defeat of the Americans. And so there was also, you know, there is also in the pursuit of that conflict, there is also um, kind of, uh, you know, pursuit of a, of a historic, of a um, attempting to kind of reverse a historic defeat, essentially, you know, the, just as, as it, just as it would have been if the Americans went back to, you know, went back to bomb Vietnam now. I think it would be very, the perversity of it would be very evident. Um, but given the form that it took of humanitarian war and, like Lily says, kind of supported by the Greens, the perversity of it was if it disguised, at least in the case of German involvement in the NATO, in the NATO bombing. 
Yes, uh, it certainly was, I think, received by uh, a lot of people in Serbia that way. And I was reading some uh, WikiLeaks uh, emails from a Stratfor analyst about the German Greens and the uh, Serbian analyst working for Stratfor. And it was just fascinating, you know, um, he's, you know, he's trying to convince his American and other uh, nationalities, uh, colleagues from Stratfor, you know, of like of the of the what the meaning of the Greens is uh, of being back in power. This is you know twelve years ago, but they were already kind of starting to make some gains in, in elections. And he says, you know, once that taboo on war was like is removed, you know, that it's not going to go back. And he said, like, you know. Um, it didn't matter that the war to, to serve, it didn't matter that the war is being waged for human rights. Uh, it was the Germans are back like they were on April 6, 1941, you know, and, and he said, like, it doesn't matter if it's for fascism or for Nazism or for human rights, like it's bombs and, you know, falling. Uh, and so, um, and I, that's quite, that's very much a sentiment that I, I feel from, from people in Serbia that um, they feel very much marked by that particular political club in Germany, specifically the Greens, yeah. And there's one individual in particular who's been instrumental to all of this, and that is the former um, German foreign minister and senior Green, Joschka Fischer, who you mentioned earlier as having the photos of himself um, in an old, you know, uh, beating up, I think, in the, beating up a riot cop in, yes. in the 60s, and that this was one of the photos that was leaked at the same time as um, Daniel Cohen ben, Bennett's um, uh, discussions of his uh, in sexual encounters with children. So, could you tell us a bit about Fisher and why his role has been so important in terms of transforming the Greens and, in particular, breaking this taboo around militarism? Yes. Um... As, as you said, uh, Joschka Fischer was a former student um, activist, a very prominent one. Um, and he was also like uh, um, one of the founders of the Green Party and became foreign minister um, when the Greens came to power in 1998 for the, during the government for the first time uh, then. Um, and so he um, was the most popular politician in Germany, from what I understand. Like he had a, a tremendous amount of uh, popular support and he ended up kind of being the kind of conscience of the, of the Greens. This, there's a pivotal kind of conference that I write about in my fourth article about the Greens, uh, where they it's just dedicated exclusively to the Kosovo War and and to the 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 um, position and the and the uh, that the German Greens are going to take. This is actually after the bombing has already started, and the, and the Greens have to decide if they're going to vote. Uh, stop the bombing immediately. Um, uh, and that means that the coalition, the last time they were in a, a traffic light coalition with um, SPD um, is going to then collapse, or they're going to say, this is the kind of the um, a more kind of compromise solution that ended up passing, uh, which is that uh, temporary cessation of bombing, and that would have permitted the coalition to continue. It was certainly not what NATO would have wanted, but um, it was still like going to, and it was, would it ultimately mean that the, the bombing was going to continue. So this was a kind of real pivotal part, uh, pivotal moment for the Greens. Um, they basically vote for, to, to allow the war to continue, um, to, to allow the bombing uh, to continue. Uh, and so about a third of the members left the party and there was a big violent confrontation in the, um, before the, the third of members leave. Um, 
there's like a Joshua Fisher is pelted with red paint uh, at this conference. Um, there are like, you know, there are police outside, mass protests, um, people likening Joshua Fisher to Hitler, um, calling him a warmonger. Um, so just this, you know, crazy scene. Uh, and uh, Joshua Fisher at this conference, I'm sorry, I'm jumping all over the place. And I already told you with how they vote, but first, let me back up because I'm remembering now. Uh, he gives this speech before they vote uh, about you know the, the the task at hand and like what's at stake. And you know this is really remembered by a lot of people in the liberal interventionist community and um, uh, Atlanticists and just kind of li uh, liberals in the United States as being kind of one of the most important speeches by a German politician ever. And, and I, I read earlier this, or sorry, not earlier this year, last year. Um, Right when the right around the time of the election, that uh, I you know from from all kind of newspapers and, and people who are very much observe looking at um, what the Germany is going to do say in the EU neighborhood so down here in, in the Balkans you know talking about this speech is like giving them chills and like you know really kind of being like this very very um, um, like moment that it, it's very strange for me you know to see people kind of um, talk about war that way but um, but yeah so anyway the, this conference the the party ends up voting for war a third of their uh, members go that's mostly people on the left and and real um De, you know, that dedicated pacifist, people who've been with the party since 1980. Uh, and um, then the party really takes a, after, after the taboo is gone on war, then everything can go. Like, you know, they become, they abandon any kind of pretense to, you know, mildly like uh, redistributionist policies and they become very pro-business and that's continued to the present day. And Yashka Fischer, I don't know, <laughs> I'm just really, <laughs> I have a lot to say about this man, uh, but he's, uh, you know, be kind of becomes Madeleine Albright's favorite person, you know, really, yeah. they're, both of them are really pushing for, for war on, um, against the Serbs. And, uh, and you know, but now, uh, today, they're in business together. He's a consultant for one of Madeleine Albright's uh, many kind of emerging market investment kind of companies. And, and they are bidding on, Kosovo's uh, uh, telecommunications company, which is, you know, even the New York Times, which tends to be quite sympathetic to these people, you know, says that, um, you know, that these are Kosovo's liberators who are now like expecting to uh, be able Cash to cash in. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there's a there's a great quote you've got uh, in the piece from, uh, I think it's Joachim Yoknow, um, mm. where the quote is uh, discussing Fisher. As with every step in Fisher's career, self-advancement was marketed as a painful realization of higher truths, whose acceptance did not mean betraying, but rather more perfectly fulfilling one's ideals for a better society. Exactly. I think that's yeah, the, it, the single it, best, it's, it's most amazing, distinct yeah. account of the 1968 left. And, and it's amazing how much of a thread there is, because I've read other things about the German Greens, which make a similar point. So like one, one uh, article in, in Damage by Bernhard Pirkel, um, about uh, the new German vice chancellor, the green uh, Habeck. The new vice chancellor once wrote a play about one of the most fateful figures in German history, the, the Weimar politician Gustav Noske, who sent in the army to suppress the communists. Um, in that play, uh, this fictionalized play, the difficult choices Noske faced 
are explored with great empathy. The self-branding is clear here. Uh, here's a sensitive intellectual who sees the bigger picture, but is not afraid to make brutal decisions as long as they're in line with the interests of the ruling class. And it's just great. It's like just this whole sequence of self-justification through this appeal to sort of maturity ethic of like, no, we're the serious people now. Um, but also these are the real way to realize our aims. And it's funny because it's something that you see also like, Ah, you can see with Blairism, for example, like, no, no, this is the real way to realize laborism. Actually, we just need to like um, basically give ourselves up to the market entirely and then we'll have a little bit more money to fund the NHS or whatever it might be. And it's like, these are the, the, the way to truly realize our aims is through bombing Kosovo or whatever. It's it's amazing. So fascinating. Like I I, um, I read one uh, piece very, like from the, the 90s about how um, the German Greens had actually been the kind of the only party in in Germany uh, where uh, in which people weren't entirely pacifist before that. In, in one instance, they believed in, say, using some level of street violence against, say, Nazis or against the police. And this, there was this idea that um, this kind of willingness to resort to, say, you know, punch Nazis, this kind of thing, actually was used to then justify war like it's that same kind of willingness right. to kind of admit yeah. it yeah interesting yeah street fighting is the same as you know dropping bombs or whatever dropping like bombs NATO. yeah NATO oh, dropping just, bombs, yeah it's just being just being more mature and more efficient if punching one nazi is good then then bombing a whole load of people committing human rights violations must be even better it's just economies of scale right <laughs> and the whole and special the kind of liberty nazi can be very kind of you know can be I mean, that's obviously like a debate, but, you know, like um, then all you have to do is kind of define your not uh, your uh, enemies, whoever they are, as Nazis, and then you can kind of justify doing anything to them. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, even how much and in fact, I mean, I think um, there's probably something to be written about this, um, but. Uh, even today, I mean, it's remarkable, I think, how much the fall of Yugoslavia still kind of haunts so many discussions in so many different contexts. I mean, so I was just reading about Barbara, um, uh, what's her name, Bar the woman who just published, the political scientist from uh, UCSD, I think, who's just published the book about the prospect of civil war in the States. Um, and Barbara, is it Barbara Walter? Um, and she talks about the... Yeah, so American political scientist Barbara Walter, and she talks about the prospect of civil war in the States. And again, the model is Yugoslavia, um, the disintegration of um, Yugoslavia with Trump cast in the role of Milosevic. Um, and so, and it's, you know, the, the strangeness of that comparison, um, you know, really kind of speaks volumes. Uh, taking 1980s Yugoslavia and imagining that could be transplanted to the States or, you know, to any other kind of major Western country is so where, odd. Where in the US is 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 Serbia? Like, I, I was going to ask, well, it, who, is it, it going to be the New England Slovenes? State, right? Is it going to be the New England Slovenes who secede first? <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, I think that, well, that, that maybe, maps, right? Maybe California, you know, California, the, you know, the rich state. So they yeah. want to break away from paying for all the poor kind of uh, all the poor rednecks. Right. So that would be the way it would go. Right. So they didn't want to like Slovenes and Croatians didn't want to pay for um, didn't want to pay for Kosovars and Macedonians and Serbs. So they break away because they're richer. And then it turns out, obviously, much later that, you know, they needed they were built around those markets. I imagine you know, it'd be the same thing in the States. California and New York would find very quickly, you know, that they're. Uh, it'd be difficult to separate away from the um, the hinterland that they depend on um, economically. But anyway, I mean, it's only to say, I think that the, um, 
Yugoslavia, you know, the different kind of roles that Yugoslavia plays in liberal, contemporary liberal visions of politics is really something. And I'm amazed that it's still being trotted out to serve, you know, all sorts of purposes um, and in such kind of vastly different contexts. So not to make the case for humanitarian war anymore or kind of refighting World War II, but now making the case um, about Trump. But again, the same kind of, you know, the same kind of transplants are made with respect to, fa you know, kind of it's fascism again, but this time it's kind of ethnic fascism, but it's in America. And I mean, it's also weird and convoluted. Um, anyway, so um, maybe just anyway. a, a sidebar. Yeah, just just to wrap this up and to get the idea of uh, you know Serbia as Missouri out of my head, um, I wanted to ask about Alabama. The, surely Alabama isn't that Montenegro? I, let's not do this. Let's not do. We can do this another time. This would be fun. Um, <laughs> actually, talking about the Greens now who are in government in Germany, um, I wondered, Lily, if you have a read on kind of what they're term in office is going to be like i mean i i just obviously don't think and you know maybe phil correct me but i don't think there's an appetite for that form of humanitarian war anymore um so i don't really see the greens leading the bombing campaigns but at the same time i'm kind of curious what their what their role is going to be they're certain certainly prioritizing uh the transatlantic relationship as you know they did in 1998 um they I, ahead of the election Annalena Baerbach was, you know, appearing at Atlantic Council events, and she has said that uh, the Greens foreign policy is led by human rights. That's, you know, that's what guides them. That's kind of what makes them distinct from, say, Merkel. Um, and so they, they've vowed to kind of, and they've already kind of started this, um, get tough on China, get tough on Russia. I mean, they're opposed to Nord Stream. This, a little bit difficult because SPD is much more accommodating towards Russia and of course they're in coalition, but um, so very critical of, of uh, say so like human rights and in, 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 uh, in Russia. And um, they've also been trying to unsuccessfully so far get the EU to impose sanctions on Milorad Dodik in, in Bosnia, Bo Bosnian Serb leader. Um, so generally some of the same kind of um, say enemies as, as uh, those of the US. So I, I kind of, in, in my articles, and I emphasize this, these are just, this is basically Washington's dream party, you know, because they, uh, they have very uh, similar kind of foreign policy orientation and uh, very, like the, same, the same enemies, but they kind of have a kind of fresh green, um, say almost more progressive mm, or new similar. car smell, new electric right? car smell. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, exactly. Yes, yes, and I think that I mean Merkel. You know, she did have a bit of. She had the old, um, generate older generations attitude about um, the war taboo for Germany. You know, she was uh, very uh, much more kind of. I don't want to use the word accommodating, but you know, um, because that's what the <laughs> that's what the Atlanticists use. Uh, but she was much more kind of um, you know uh, friendly or willing to work with Russia, and uh, the Greens are much more kind of antagonistic, from what I understand. But I'm sure that that you guys have something to say about that, Phil, perhaps. Uh, I mean, only I mean, it's interesting what you say about how they're kind of pushing the Atlanticist agenda with respect to the Balkans and with respect to Russia. I mean, it's hard to imagine that there's any kind of um, another new Western war on the horizon. Um, but never, you know, never underestimate, uh, never underestimate their their lust for war. Um, 
just yeah. like the pedophiles lust for kids um so they've you know and i thought i mean war i thought war wasn't going to happen they wouldn't go to war again after iraq and then they bombed libya you know so i think right. i mean it doesn't seem likely but on the other hand i wouldn't underestimate the um the opportunity for some of the some of that smattering of um of glory from a quick bombing campaign is seems to be irresistible to western politicians over the last 30 years so who knows totally possible you know the um i know that uh the Greens have said, or Annalena Baerbach said that, um, you know, it's Germany's history means um, means that it has to kind of protect Ukraine's territorial integrity. So now they're kind of using the it's um, Germany's historical responsibility based on its past to defend, um, you know, to defend its its allies. So it, it's this kind of interesting, like. <laughs> um, uh, shift that we discussed before, how instead of um, uh, Germany's kind of historical responsibility being rooted in, you know, um, experience of like being an aggressor and needing to be pacifist in, in, in face of, um, as a response, and now it needs to be kind of more aggressive. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, Germany's yeah, future sure. is to be found on the Asian steps. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that sounds <laughs> totally fine. That sounds totally oh. cool. If you're if you're talking about responsibility to protect like globally, then Germany has more responsibility than anyone else. They've got as uh, as much as uh, is required. They'll take over the decision. world. They'll take over the world while they're apologising for it. Um, all right, maybe we should leave this here. Uh, thank you so much, Lily. You know you're always welcome on BungaCast anytime. This has been a lot of fun, thank listeners. You. you should sign up and subscribe to Lily's Patreon. It's Patreon.com/slash Lily S Lynch. Um, very good stuff on there um, about uh, well about kind of global <laughs> affairs, but especially about uh, Eastern Europe, I suppose. And so people should sign up. And also about also about the Greens. So I think yeah. takeaway the takeaway. What I get from this is the Greens, they're Nazis, they'll bomb you, they'll fuck your kids, and they'll probably turn off the central heating once they've abolished nuclear power too. So I think you know, that's my takeaway from this from this session anyway. Great takeaway. Very good. Perfect. All right. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you, Lily. And we'll see you next time. Catch you later. Bye-bye. <laughs>